The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Uh, Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're going to conclude our study on the Olivet Discourse this morning. We've been going through Matthew 24, 25. We're finishing it up today. Now, in this discourse, you got to remember, we've been saying this the whole time, the Lord is answering His disciples' questions about the destruction of the temple, His parousia, and the end of the Jewish age. Now, up to this point, we've seen that the Olivet Discourse of Yeshua is one connected and continuous prophecy. Nothing changes along the way. He didn't change subjects. He's just still talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. All of it was to take place according to the Lord's prediction before the existing generation would pass away. And we keep going back to verse 34 of 24. Truly I say to you, the you are the disciples that asked the question, this generation, the one he's talking to, the one they're living in, will not pass away until all these things take place. And we've gone over that. Now in our text for this morning, we're going to encounter a passage which in the opinion of almost all commentators cannot be understood as referring to Jerusalem or Israel, but to the whole human race and the consummation of all things. That's how most people see this last section. He says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people, from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, when you read this passage, it seems to take a wider range than Jerusalem and Israel. I mean, it reads like a judgment, not of a nation, but of all nations, not of a city or country, but the world. Not a passing crisis, but gives us the idea of a final consummation. But again, let me remind you, this is not a new section. Introducing a new subject, it's not doing that, all right? It's an integral part of the prophecy against Israel. He is still answering the disciples' questions, all right? And they didn't ask about the end of the world, all right? The text deals with the judgment of Israel and the end of the Jewish age. Now, strictly speaking, this passage is not a parable, but it does contain some parabolic (coughs) elements, excuse me, He says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory. This text is connected with what goes before. This is apparent by, I think, the language used here. If we compare this text, let's say, go back to Matthew 24, 30, and 31, we'll see that he's talking about the same thing. Let's go back to Matthew 24, 30, 31. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then will all the tribes of the earth mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet and call call them, and and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. All right, now look. In both texts, we see the Son of Man coming in glory. In both, we see He comes with His angels, and He comes for the purpose of judgment. 
Now, the text in Matthew 24, 30, and 31 has a very clear time statement with it that we just looked at. This generation will not pass away. So the Lord's coming in glory with His angels for the purpose of judgment was to come in the lifetime of those to whom He spoke. Matthew 25, 31 through 46 is speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, the end of the Jewish age. It's not a new topic. It's simply an elaboration of Jerusalem's judgment. Now, it deserves particular notice that the description of the coming of the Son of Man in glory, given in our text, corresponds in all points with Matthew 16, 27 and 28, of which it is expressly stated that it would be witnessed by some of them then present when the prediction was made. He says, For the Son of Man is going to come, with his angels, in the glory of his Father, then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, if we compare the two texts, we'll see several things. First of all, that in both passages, the subject referred to is the same. The Son of Man is going to come when the Son of Man comes. All right, it's talking about the coming of the Son of Man. It's talking about the parousia that they asked him about back in the beginning verses. All right, secondly, in both passages, he's described as coming in glory. C, in both, he's attended by his holy angels. D, in both, he comes as king. In the Son of Man, coming in his kingdom. And then in 25, he says, he will set on his glorious throne. And then in verse 34, he says, then the king. So he is coming as a king. In both, he comes to judgment. He's going to repay each, and he's going to separate people one from another. And then F, in both, the judgment is represented as, in some sense, universal. He's going to repay each person. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another. And then G, in Matthew 16, 28, it is expressly stated that this coming in glory was to take place in the lifetime of some of them present. We see that in 26, some standing here will not taste death. And then again, back in 24, this generation. This fixes the time of the parousia within the life of the human beings at that time, their generation, a 40-year period. Thus being the, in perfect accord with the period defined by our Lord in His prophetic discourse, this generation. That's a 40-year period. Some of you will still be alive. I think we can clearly see that the coming of the Son of Man in Matthew 25, 31 and 32, is identical with that referred to in Matthew 24, 30 and 31, and 16, 27, 28, which some of the disciples, he says, would still be alive to witness. Our text is clearly speaking of a first-century judgment. The judgment took place in AD 70. The destruction of Jerusalem, the coming of Christ, the resurrection, the judgment are all connected in Scripture. Now, notice the similarity of our text to Matthew 13. He says, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels. They will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and law-breaking and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
So here we see at the end of the age, that's the Jewish age, the Son of Man returns with His angels to judge the wicked and reward the righteous. And we see from verse 43 that it was a time of resurrection. Because verse 43 of Matthew 13 is a quotation from Daniel 12. So let's go to Daniel 12. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people, that's Israel, right? Daniel's people, got that? At that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. There's resurrection. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. All right, so verse 43 of Matthew 13 states that those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky. And, and then in Daniel, he says they'll shine like the brightness of the sky. In Matthew 13, he says the righteous will shine like the sun. So he's connecting these. Daniel 12 is all part of it. They are connected. Now notice back in Daniel, he says it's going to be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. That's the same thing Matthew 24, 21 says about the tribulation, which will be a time of deliverance for the elect of God. We see the same idea in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-8. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. All right, now here's what he's telling the Thessalonians. These, this was written to the people who lived in Thessalonica. In the first century, real people, live people, he wrote them this letter. They got it in the first century. I'm trying to emphasize this, okay? And he says, God is just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So they're being afflicted. They're being persecuted. God says he's going to repay the people who are doing that with affliction. And look, and I'll grant you relief who are afflicted. So he's going to take care of them and give you relief. When's this going to happen? When the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. Who was this written to? He says, you, those who afflict you, the Thessalonians, and to grant relief to you, Thessalonians. Now, if the Lord did not come in the first century, then God just lied to the Thessalonians. You're persecuted. I'm going to grant you relief. When? When the Lord comes in 2,000 years. Well, I don't think we'll need it then, okay? Because I will have been dust for a long, long time. He wrote to the first century saints, and he's telling them, you will receive relief at the second coming. Because your enemies are going to be dealt with. All right? Back to Daniel, Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Verse 2 of Daniel 12 tells us that at this time the resurrection was to take place. Those resurrected are either given everlasting life or everlasting contempt. Same thing our text tells us in Matthew 25. We see the same thing in our text, all right? And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Verse 3 of Daniel 12 is the verse that is quoted in Matthew 13. 
Thus, the coming of the Son of Man in Matthew 25.31 is the same as His coming in Matthew 13.41, which is the same event Daniel spoke of in Daniel 12.1-3. This all happened in AD 70 and was manifest by Jerusalem's destruction. Now, verse 31 of Matthew 25 states that when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Now, this is not a literal throne. It expresses the idea that He will come as a king and He will come as a judge. In Matthew 20, 21, two of the disciples asked Yeshua to grant them the right to sit on the right and the left hand in the kingdom. Now, the parable passage in Mark 10.37 says they asked to sit with Him in your glory. So the kingdom is the glory of Yeshua. Thus, if Yeshua came in His glory, He came in His kingdom. Now, the words, all the nations here in verse 32, have led many to believe that this passage is not referring to the destruction of Jerusalem at the close of the Jewish age, but to a universal and a final judgment of all mankind, something that they put off thousands of years into the future. But does the phrase, all the nations, jump ahead thousands of years? I don't think so. We know that it's not uncommon to find in Scripture universal propositions which need to be understood in a qualified or restricted sense. For example, we see this in Matthew 24-22, And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. Nobody. Everybody would be wiped out. Now we know from our study in Matthew 24 that the tribulation was the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple by the Roman armies. And yet we have an expression used in regard to the inhabitants of a city or country. No human being would be saved. That's wide enough to include the whole human race. In Matthew 25, 32, before Him will be gathered all the nations. The phrase all the nations is equivalent to the phrase all the tribes of the earth, used in 2430. There's no error in distinguishing tribes as nations. Now, in our Lord's time, it was usual to speak of the inhabitants of Palestine as consisting of several nations. Josephus, who was a first century writer, he was a Jew, he speaks of the nations of the Samaritans. He speaks of the nation of the Galileans using the very word ethnos, the Greek word for nations, which is used in our passage, Judea was a distinct nation, often with its own king. So also was Samaria, so also was Idumea, Galilee, Perea, all of which had at different times princes with the title of ethnarch, which is a name which signifies the ruler of a nation. So, it's really doing no violence then to the language to understand ethnos as referring to all the nations of Palestine or all the tribes of the earth. Now, I think this view can be supported by the fact that the same phrase is used in the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, all ethnos, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, this commission is given to the disciples. Verse 16 tells us he's talking to the disciples. Did they understand this as a charge to evangelize the whole world? I don't think so. Here. Do what? 
<laughs> well, if they did understand this as a command to disciple the whole world, they were neg- negligent in doing it. Okay? They didn't do that. Now, Professor Burton observes this. He says, It was not until 14 years after our Lord's ascension that St. Paul traveled for the first time and preached the gospel to the Gentiles. Nor is there any evidence that during that period the other apostles passed the confines of Judea. So if they saw that as the Great Commission, go into all the world, they're like, nah, we're staying here. And the disciples seemed really surprised to find out that Gentiles were getting saved. And if they saw that as a commission to go to the world, why would they be surprised? Look what Acts 10, 45. And the believers from among the circumcision who had come with Peter were amazed. What are they so amazed about? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was being poured out on the Gentiles. Wow, look at Gentiles are getting saved. That's amazing. And then... In Acts eleven eighteen, 18, it says, When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And when Peter was challenged in Acts eleven three, 3, he said, they told him, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. He doesn't appeal to the Great Commission. Oh, hey, You guys, God told us to do that. Go to all the world. I would have done that, but no, He doesn't appeal to that at all. Why? They didn't view it that way. Now, if the phrase, all the nations, had been understood by the disciples in its literal sense, it's difficult to imagine how they could have failed to recognize at once the universal character of the gospel. And their commission to preach it, alike to Jew and Gentile, it required a distinct revelation from heaven to get them going. This, in, in Acts chapter 10 there, it'd been 10 years, and they haven't left. They're still hanging out. What got them going? Persecution. God said, well, you're not listening too good. I'll get you out of there. Let me bring some persecution on That scattered them, and then they started taking the gospel to other places. But it required a distinct revelation from heaven to overcome Jewish prejudices. Peter tells Cornelius about his vision from God. He said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And again, in Acts 10, we're 10 years later. And he's like, oh, God just showed me this. I can eat with you guys. I can share the gospel with you guys. Paul, through revelation, learned a mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Yeshua through the gospel. Let's look at Ephesians 3, 3 through 6. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. God gave Paul special revelation of this mystery. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. Take note of that. The mystery, he says, was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. In other words, this is something new, people. As it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The reconciliation of Jew and Gentiles into Christ and in His church was a mystery that no 
Old Covenant saint, including the prophets, understood. It was a reconciliation accomplished by our Lord on the cross of Calvary, and the message of the apostles and prophets, including Paul, who proclaimed it, it was a message which, in which self-righteous Jews hated intensely. And that's why Paul was writing often from prison. All right? They didn't like this message. He says, as it has now been revealed. Now, there are two views about how to interpret this adverbial conjunction. Hos, as there, some take this comparative conjunction as restrictive, which means that the mystery was partially revealed in the Tanakh, but has now been fully revealed. But other scholars consider the comparative conjunction hos to be descriptive, which means that no revelation of this mystery was given in the Tanakh, but that it was revealed for the first time in the New Testament. And that's how I take this. I think this has never been revealed before. Now listen, they knew that Gentiles were to come in. Gentiles were to be part of the faith, right? Ephesians 3, 3 through 6. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Yeshua through the gospel. Now, the form in which the calling of the Gentiles was predicted in the Tanakh I think led to the general impression that they were partakers of the blessing of Messiah's reign by becoming Jews. All right, They thought they had to come and be proselytes. They had to convert to Judaism to get in on this. And by being proselytes, they were merged into the old theocracy, which was to remain in all its peculiarities. All right? Now, it never entered into their mind, I think, in the Old Covenant, that the theocracy itself was to be abolished. And a new Jerusalem was to be introduced, designed and adapted equally for all mankind, under which the distinction between Jew and Gentile was done away. People, this was huge for them. Jews hated Gentiles. Gentiles hated Jews. And then God comes along and says, For God so loved the world. And Jews are losing their mind. What? You love Gentiles? That's how they took that. They took that as, you don't just love Jews, you love other people. Big, it was huge for them. They're going to share, they're going to be in the same body with unclean Gentiles? That wasn't something easy for them to comprehend. 25.32 says, all the nations are going to be glad. Now, in light of these texts, I think it seems reasonable to give the phrase all nations a restricted sense to limit it to the nations of Palestine. They hadn't taken the gospel anywhere else. They were staying there. They didn't see the Great Commission as scattering them. So I think the nations here is referring to the nations of Palestine. That seems to fit with the words of our Lord in Matthew 10, 23. He says, When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So he's saying, if they're persecuting you in Galilee, then flee over here to Edomia. And they persecute you in Edomia, then you flee from there. And guess what? You won't have gone to all the towns before I come back. Whoa, okay. Well, that kind of limits it to the first century, to a quick coming. They were commissioned to preach the gospel to Israel, and Yeshua told them that they would not reach all the cities before he returned. He goes on. Well, back in Matthew 25, 33, he says, And he will place the sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left. 
Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now here, God's elect are represented under the common image of his sheep. We're familiar with that, right? God's sheep are blessed in that they now take their inheritance. The kingdom was prepared for God's elect, listen, from the foundation of the world. Those who come to God for salvation come because God chose them in eternity past. All right? I know this is very different from our day and age because today you come because you just decided it might be a good deal. But God chose you from eternity past. Look at Ephesians 1.4. Even as He chose us. I thought I chose Him. No, He chose us. In Him, watch, before the foundation of the world. That's a long time ago, right? How did God know I was going to be here? He knows everything and He chose me. All right, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. To the Thessalonians, he says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved of the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved. God chose you to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. The judge tells them that the kingdom was prepared for them. It was designed for them. They were appointed from the beginning. Listen, this is not a new plan. All right, dispensationalism teaches God had to change plans because things didn't go His way. No, this was always the plan. God doesn't have plan B because plan A always works. Okay? Matthew 25, He goes on, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer Him saying, they're confused, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. That's pretty powerful there. He's saying how you treat your brothers is how you treat me. Okay? We see here that the destiny of the righteous and the wicked is determined by their treatment of those Christ calls my brothers. There's nothing said here about faith. The judgment is based on acts of love toward the distressed brothers of Christ. So it's not surprising that this text causes much perplexity both to theologians and general readers. I mean, you read this and it sounds okay, we get in because we were good to the brothers. Sisters, right? We loved each other, and so we get to get in. William Barclay writes this. This is one of the most vivid parables Jesus ever spoke. And the lesson is crystal clear, that God will judge us in accordance with our reaction to human need. Do you hope that's not true? <laughs> Let me tell you something about Barclay. Barclay, you'll see his commentaries a lot. Barclay is a good historian. He's good with the language, but he's a liberal, all right? When, when Christ walked on water, Barclay says there was exceptionally dense lily pads in the area. I could just see Yeshua was jumping from lily pad to lily pad, you know. Come on, how, you ever seen a lily pad that would hold a man? 
I never have. There must be some seriously strong lily pads in that area. But, you know, he just, he doesn't believe in miracles. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt. Like I said, Barclay's a good historian. All right. He's good on the culture. But, you know, when it comes to anything spiritual, don't believe him. All right. All right. Now, so. Excuse me. Can I just Yep. Well, you might, you, I guess you, that's in the eyes of the beholder, you know. God will judge us in accordance with the reaction. But he's talking about salvation, all right, in the context here. So, yes, if he's taking that, uh, not in that context, not to talking about salvation, then that definitely would, would put us in a different place. But is this the doctrine of Paul that we're going to be judged by God according to how we treat our fellow man? Is this the ground of justification before God set forth in the New Testament? Are we to conclude that everlasting destiny of the whole human race from Adam to the last man will finally turn on love and sympathy towards the persecuted and suffering brothers in Christ? Well, not according to the teaching of the New Testament. And listen, people, there's a lot of things in the Bible we can get wrong. Okay, people argue about everything in the Bible. Everybody has a different opinion. But when it comes to salvation, let's make sure we get straight on that, okay? That's not a side issue. Look at Romans 3.24. Paul says, And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Yeshua. Alright, now, he said you're justified by His grace as a gift. The Greek word for gift here is the word doria. Doria means gratuitously. Doria means without a cause. It means freely. The word grace is the Greek word charos, which means unmerited favor, freely. Why is he doubling this? It is redoubled to stress the idea that it's free. It's by grace as a gift. He's saying the same thing almost twice. He's redoubling because he wants to understand. Our justification is all of God. Nothing in this act of justification belongs to us. Listen, if, if anything belongs to us, then we have reason to glory in His presence. Hey, you know, I did this, God. I, did, I was pretty good. You know? Paul says in verse 28, For we hold that one is justified by faith. That would be pretty good. We understand that. But any emphasize apart from the works of the law. Oh, no, you don't have to. But i got to keep the Sabbath. i got to be certain. No, no, no. You're justified by faith. Look four, five. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And in Romans eleven six, Paul says this, but if it's by grace, It's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Okay? You understand that, right? When you get your paycheck at the end of the week and your boss says, this is grace, what did he just say to you? You are a lousy worker. You haven't done jack this week. This is a grace gift to you because your paycheck shouldn't be grace. I earned it. And if you earned it, it's not grace. And if it's grace, you didn't earn it. Okay, so if your boss says that to you, I'm sorry. But you need to take care of some stuff, okay? Obviously, he doesn't think you're doing a very good job. 
The clear teaching of the New Testament is that salvation is by grace through faith alone. Yet this text in Matthew 25 seems to be saying that judgment is based on works. The difficulty, I think, is easily and completely solved if we regard this judicial transaction as the judgment of Israel at the close of the Jewish age. It is the rejected king of Israel who's the judge. It is the hostile and unbelieving generation of Jews, the last and worst of the nation, that is arraigned before his tribunal. Let's look at, he says here, so that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on the earth. He's back to Matthew 23 here. I want to tie this in. All the righteous bloodshed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. The one he's talking to. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As those first century Jews responded to Christ's disciples, or his brothers as he calls them in the text, as they aligned themselves with their distress and afflictions, they were aligning themselves with the Messiah whom they preached. The acceptance or rejection of the disciples was based upon their acceptance or rejection of the Messiah of Israel. Saul persecuted Christians because he didn't believe that Yeshua was the Messiah. So they were treating their brothers right because they believed in Messiah and they believed they were his brothers. The people who were persecuting them were doing it because they didn't believe in Messiah. So in attacking them, they were in fact attacking Christ. Acts 9.5, and he said, who are you, Lord? This is Saul crying out you know, to the Lord. And he said, I'm Yeshua whom you're persecuting. And Saul scratching his head said, I don't even know you. How can I persecute you? Who is he persecuting? The church. Christ is one with his church. So they persecuted him, they persecuted the church. The people designated as the brothers of mine in our text, who are taken as the representative of Christ himself, are evidently the disciples of the Lord, in whom he hungered and thirsted and was naked and sick and in prison. All this is in perfect harmony with the words of Christ to his disciples when he sent them out to preach back in Matthew 10. Let's go back there. These twelve Yeshua sent out instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter to no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So they were called to preach the gospel of the kingdom to Israel. They didn't worry about the rest of the nations. They didn't worry about going out. Those of Israel who didn't receive their words would receive a judgment worse than that of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet. And when you leave that house or town, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now, they would literally, if they were coming into Israel from another nation, they would stop and get all the Gentile dirt off their feet. Okay? They didn't want any of that brought into Israel. All right? So, Yeshua warns them that Israel hated him. So, they will hate them. He says, It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. 
If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So Yeshua told them that their reception or rejection would be his reception or his rejection. And you got to keep that in mind as you go to our text. He already taught them this. When they're treating the disciples bad, it's because they've rejected the Messiah. He goes on, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he's a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now, because the Jews hated Christ, they mistreated his followers. That's, it's still happening, all right? Those who believed in Christ were kind in their treatment of his disciples because they viewed him as one with them. This judgment is based upon faith or rejection of Yeshua as Messiah. All right? Look at 25, 41. Then we say to those on the left, depart from me. You cursed in the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry. Gave me no food, I was thirsty, you gave me no drink, I was a stranger, you did not welcome me naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did not do it to me, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Now, who is Yeshua addressing in this part of the text? They will say to those on his left. Who's on the left? Okay. The goats. The goats are on the left. You got that? The left? (laughs) That's kind of interesting. (laughs) The goats are on the left. I knew that. Okay. Throughout Yeshua's ministry, he talked about himself as a good shepherd. And the people who followed him were his sheep. And sheep are known to be defenseless. They're relying upon a shepherd to care for them, for protection, for direction. But unlike sheep, goats are known for being headstrong, self-reliant, independent. According to the text, who are the goats? I know they're on the left, so the goats are on the left, but who are they? He says, and these will go into eternal punishment. What's that tell us about the goats? They're unbelievers. They're unbelievers, right? They, yeah, they are those who go into eternal punishment. So the ones on the left are the goats, and the goats are unbelievers. All right. You know what that tells me right off? It tells me that universalism is, universalism is wrong. There's many today out teaching this doctrine of universalism. God loves everybody. Everybody will be saved. No, but they don't know. Everybody's going to be saved. But it's wrong because if you're a goat, you go into eternal punishment. You know what the main <coughs> excuse me, presupposition of universalism is? God loves everybody. Does the Bible teach that God loves everybody? No, it does not teach that. Let me just give you one verse. As it is written, Jacob, I love, but Esau I hated. Is Esau the only person that ever lived that God hated? Did God love Esau? No. Well, was Esau part of the world? Hmm, how's this work out? Listen, people, here's what we have to understand. One of the most popular beliefs of our day 
is that God loves everybody. But the idea that God loves everybody is a modern belief. The writings of the church fathers, the reformers, the Puritans, they'll be searched in vain for any such concept. The fact is the love of God is a truth for the saints only. Okay? Listen, not once in the four Gospels do we read Yeshua telling sinners that God loves them. He didn't have a tract to hand out. Smile, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. No, he never says that. And someone's going to say, oh yeah, John 3.16, it says God loves the world. That's right, and the world has nothing to do with everybody. It's Jew and Gentile. He loves his elect, both of Jews and of Gentiles. You know, in the book of Acts, come to the book of Acts, and there we have recorded the evangelistic labors and the messages of the apostles as they go out to evangelize the world. You know what's really strange? God's love is never referred to once in the book of Acts. Never. Love's not used in the book of Acts at all. Doesn't that sound strange? The whole book's about the evangelistic efforts of the church. If God loves everybody, shouldn't that be their message? That seems odd. But you know, when you come to the epistles, which are addressed to the saints, then you have a full presentation of this truth about God's love. In Romans 5.8 it says, God demonstrated His love toward us. Who's the us? Believers. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. People like to take that verse as a universe. No, He died for, He loved us. Go back in the context and find out who the us is. It's the believers at Rome. Those who trust in Christ are blessed and they enter the kingdom. Those who reject Christ are punished, being eternally separated from Christ. He says, depart from me. Their destiny is eternal fire. Now, the image employed here is used to express suffering. I don't think that the fire is literal. The truth intended to be taught here is not the manner of suffering, but the certainty of it. There's going to be punishment. Notice here that the eternal fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, since the devil and his angels are spirits... The fire being literal, how do you burn a spirit? Okay, I don't think it's literal. Then they will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you? Notice here that the goats are calling him Lord. I think that's a fulfillment of Philippians 2.11. And every tongue shall confess that you, Yeshua the Christ, is Lord. Now please notice the contrast of verse 36. These are go away into eternal punch. That's the goats. But the righteous, that's the sheep, into eternal life. Eternal punishment. The original word here, translated punishment, means torment or suffering inflicted for a crime. The noun is only used one other place in the New Testament. And we saw that in our study of 1 John 4.18. It says, fear involves punishment. And that's talking about more of a mental anguish that fear causes. So it's not really talking about anything physical, I don't think. The verb form, which the noun is derived from, is only used twice. It's used once in Acts 4.21. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. So they wanted to physically punish them, but they couldn't do it. So that gives us the idea of you know, physical punishment. In 2 Peter 2.9, And the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. 
So that, we don't know, that doesn't seem like physical punishment. God's keeping them under physical punishment until the judgment. I'm not sure how that could go there. This word teaches us that the wicked are going to be punished. Now here we have a comparison between eternal punishment and eternal life. The word eternal is the same in both cases. Eternal is from the Greek word ionios. comes from ion, which means existing at all times, perpetual, pertaining to unlimited duration of time. So people argue that if the righteous get eternal life, then the wicked get eternal punishment. That's true. That's what it says. But what does eternal punishment mean? Yeah, irreversible for sure, okay? If you take something and you throw it in the fire, is it destroyed? For how long? Forever. It's never coming back, right? We see from the Scriptures that the punishment that God threatens for unbelievers is death. Let's go to our John 3.16, all right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish. It doesn't say... They won't go to hell or they won't suffer throughout eternity. It says they're not going to perish. It's the opposite of eternal life. It's the opposite of life without death. So what the wicked get is eternal death. It's talking about the result of the action and not the action itself. The punishment is death and that is eternal. You're never going to come to life. You're you're gone. The destruction of the wicked in the lake of fire is permanent. It's a punishment that cannot be reversed. The act of punishing will come to an end, but the consequence will last forever. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So here we said, those who are perishing, who are those? They're the non-elect. But to those who are the called, that's the elect, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the contrast is those who are perishing and those who are being saved. The Bible teaches that the reward of believers is everlasting life. The punishment of the wicked is just as the Scripture states, it's death, which is the opposite of life. As the wicked will have no escape from death, It's an eternal punishment. We have here the judgment of the guilty nation or the nations of Palestine who rejected their king, despitefully treated and slew his messengers, and whose day of doom was now at hand. This being so, the entire prophecy on the Mount of Olives is seen as one homogeneous, connected whole. You can't divide this. You can't separate it up. It's clear, consecutive, historical, truthful representation of the judgment of the theocratic nation at the close of the age, the Jewish age. A universal judgment in our future is entirely unnecessary. Those who have died since AD 70, they already know where they'll spend eternity because they're already there. When a person dies, his spirit immediately enters heaven or it perishes. So what purpose would there be of a future judgment? Look at John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Present tense. Whoever does not believe in the Son shall not see life. The wrath of God abides on him. It's already abiding on him. He won't see it. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, 
He's passed from death to life. That's already happened, people. Those who do not believe in Yeshua the Christ will not see life because they are under the wrath of God. Believers have already passed from death to life, and there is no judgment. Now, believers, when I say there's no judgment, and then I say this, people get all confused and stuff. Believers are going to stand before Christ to give an account of what they have done with their life here, to receive rewards. All right, First, 2 Corinthians 5.10. We must all, believers, appear before the Bema of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The Bema judgment seat was well known for the Corinthians. Believers were to be judged in a review of their works, their performance for Christ. This has nothing to do with trusting Christ. It's how you've lived your life for Christ. There's going to be rewards for that. Now, I don't understand at all about how that works out or what you're going to get. You're going to get ten cities, he says to some. You're going to get five cities. I don't want any cities, okay? Uh, (laughs) Especially if there's politicians in them. Don't want any of that stuff, all right? But the Bible teaches that believers will be rewarded for what they do here. All right. Now, as we come to the close of the Olivet Discourse, I want to read you a rather lengthy quote from J. Stuart Russell, because I think it kind of wraps up this whole study that we've been doing for, I don't know, it's been a long time since we started this thing. Uh, But I want to read you this from J. Stuart Russell. Before passing away from this deeply interesting prophecy, it may be proper to avert to the marvelous, minute fulfillment which it received as testified by an exceptionally witness, the Jewish historian Josephus. It is a fact of singular interest and importance that there should have been preserved to the posterity a full and authentic record of the times and transactions referred to in our Lord's prophecy, and that this record should be from the pen of a Jewish statesman, soldier, priest, and man of letters, not only having access to the best sources of information, but himself an eyewitness of many of the events which he restates. It gives additional weight to this testimony that it does not come from a Christian. All right, Josephus was not a Christian. He was a Jew. But when the Romans attacked, he went over to the Roman side. He was a traitor. And he went over to the Roman side, and he says, okay, I'll surrender to you guys. And so they took him and said, okay, how you get your pen and stuff, and you come along and you write down what's happening. He became, he was an historian, and he just took record of what was going on. He wasn't a Christian, so he's not on the Christian side. He's just trying to tell the story. I know there's a lot of people who question different acts. And, well, Josephus wrote this, and we don't know. Unless you were back there, because somebody else said something, does that contradict Josephus? Who's to say which one, you know? We just have to do the best we can from the records we have because that's, that's all we can do. No, we, can't, we don't have any eyewitness testimony today that we can you know, talk to, all right? Who might have been suspected of partisanship, but from a Jew indifferent, if not hostile, to the cause of Jesus, all right? So striking is the coincidence between the prophecy and the history that the old objection of Porphy against the book of Daniel that it must have been written after the event might be plausibly alleged were there the slightest pretense for such an insinuation. You know, people questioned Daniel because Daniel was so accurate they said it had to be written afterwards. So that's what they're trying to say. Well, maybe Josephus wrote this after because it's just so accurate of what really happened. People, we can deal with the time statements there, okay? Through the Jewish people, 
were, though the Jewish people were at all times restless and uneasy under the yoke of Rome, all right, that's true, they didn't like being under Rome, there was no urgent symptoms of disaffection at the time when our Lord delivered this prediction of the approaching destruction of the temple, the city, and the nation. In other words, when the Lord gave this prediction, everything was fine there. They weren't in battle with Rome, they were getting along. He says, the higher classes were profuse in their profession of loyalty to the imperial government. We have no king but Caesar, was their cry. Isn't that ridiculous that a Jew would say that? It was the policy of Rome to grant the free exercise of their own religion to the subject provinces. There was therefore no apparent reason why the new and splendid temple, the temple was still being finished when Yeshua gave this prophecy. There was construction going on still, okay? It hadn't been finished yet. Therefore, no apparent reason why this new and splendid temple of Jerusalem should not stand for centuries and Judea enjoy a greater tranquility and prosperity under the Aegeus of Caesar than she had ever known under the native provinces. Yet before the generation which rejected the crucified and crucified, the son of David, had wholly passed away, the Jewish nationality was extinguished. Jerusalem was a desolation. The holy and beautiful house of Mount Zion was razed to the ground, and the unhappy people who knew not the time of their visitation were overwhelmed by the calamities without a parallel in the annals of the world. All this is undeniable, and yet it would be too much to expect that this will be regarded as an adequate fulfillment of the Savior's words by many whom prejudice or traditional interpretations have taught to see more in the prophecy than ever inspiration included in it. No doubt there are some portions of this prediction which are capable of verification by human testimony. Does anyone expect Tacitus or Suetonius or Josephus, these are all historians, or any other historian to relate that the Son of Man was seen coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory? that he summoned the nations to his tribunal, rewarded every man according to his works. There is a region into which witnesses and reporters may not enter. Flesh and blood may not gaze upon the mysteries of the spiritual and immaterial. But there is also a large portion of the prophecy which is capable of verification, and which has been amply verified. Even an assailant of Christianity who impugns the supernatural knowledge of Christ is compelled to admit that the portion relating to the destruction of the city is singularly definite and corresponds very closely with the actual event. You understand what he's saying? Even if you don't believe, I mean, just look at the facts. This is what the Lord said was going to happen. There's no reason for it to happen. Everybody was fine when he said that. But it happened just like he said. Now, Ernest Hamden Cook, in his book, Christ Has Come, written in 1905, put it this way. By a process of reasoning, the astronomer Adams discovered the planet Neptune before it had been seen by human eyes. He knew that there must be such a planet because its existence was essential for the explanation of other un undoubted facts. In the same way, although it cannot be proved from history that the Lord Jesus personally and visibly returned to the earth at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, Yet relying on his solemn teaching, 
we may be morally certain that he did so return. The past second advent is the key to the understanding of the whole of the New Testament. In the light of this one event, a world of mystery vanishes and a new world of truth stands revealed. And then Russell continues with this, The punctual fulfillment of that part of the prophecy which comes within the field of human observation is the guarantee for the truth of the remainder, which does not fall within that sphere. We shall find in the sequel of this discussion that the events which now appear to many incredible were the confident expectation and hope of the apostolic age, and that the early Christians were fully persuaded of the reality and nearness. We are placed, therefore, in this dilemma. Either the words of Jesus have failed, and the hope of His disciples have been falsified, or else the words and hopes have been fulfilled, and the prophecy in all its parts has been fully accomplished. One thing is certain, the veracity of our Lord is committed to the assertion that the whole and every part of the events contained in this prophecy were to take place before the close of the existing generation. If any language may claim to be precise and definite, it is that which our Lord employs to mark the limits of the time within which all His words were to be fulfilled. Whatever other catastrophes or other nations and other ages there may be in the future, concerning them the Lord is silent. He speaks of His own guilty nation and of His judicial coming at the close of the age, as had been often and clearly foretold by Malachi, John the Baptist, and by Himself. I say Amen. That's good stuff, people. You know, the evidence is strong. If we take it at fact, and, and like I said, it, it, you know, if you, you, if you read Josephus' War of the Jews and compare that with what the Bible talks about the Great Tribulation, it looks like an overlay, okay? Because he talks about the things that would happen, and we see those things from Scripture declaring that they happen. And, he's, and here's a historian saying, they happen. This happened. And with that, we close our Olivet Discourse. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. Lord, again, I just pray you'd give us all the hearts of Bereans. We wouldn't accept, we wouldn't reject, we would study, Lord. May we take the things we have heard and look into them to see if these things are so. If they are, may we believe them. If they're not, may we reject them. Lord, thank you for the privilege we have in this day and age to have so much study material at our disposal. May we be diligent, Lord, to use it. May we study, Lord, to approve ourselves before you, a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Amen. All right, questions, comments. Excuse me? That died? Yeah. Give me it. That's oh, that's Zoe's. That's right. That battery didn't get charged. Okay. Pay no attention to that lady behind the curtain. <laughs> I forget his name. He did not very prominent. The historian. Barclay. Barclay. Yes. Did you call him a Sadducee? <laughs> well, he must be a Sadducee because he didn't believe in the resurrection. <laughs> I mean, he just has some, you know. 
Yes. This is a little off point maybe, but how, how do you explain or is there more information on second, third generation Christians came after, after the fall of Jerusalem? How there, is there any writing referring to that and scripture to help us to understand? Well, Connie, there is a lot of silence after that time period. There, you know, and that has caused some to say, well, all the Christians got raptured in AD 70. And that's why there's no writings, and that's why there's no one commenting. And I don't buy that. I think the Christians fled. They got out of Dodge. They went to Pella. And, you know, so why? We don't really know. But, for yeah, for a while after that, there was not, there's not much writings at all. Well, we haven't found them yet. Yes. <laughs> wouldn't all the Christians have been raptured at that point? At the fall of Jesus? No, no, I don't. I don't believe that the Christians were raptured at that time. I believe they. They. I don't want to get into the whole rapture passage, but those who were living at that time, the destruction of Jews, those Christians who were alive at that time, they received eternal life. All right, they became. They joined in the king, into the kingdom of God, fully consummated kingdom. They were still here on earth. They still went on and functioned just like they do, just like people now when they get saved. They still go to their job, and they still have a wife, and they still do the things that they do, okay? Hopefully not sinning things, but, you know, moving towards righteousness. But, no, I don't think they were raptured at that time. I think that when you die, that's what the rapture was taught. That passage, and I have a, I have a message on that if you want to listen to that in detail. I'll give you more insight. Uh, this, is, this is a leap. But oh boy, here we go. <laughs> Let me get my jumping shoes on. In your uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. explanation of John 3.16 there, um, you talk about um, they, those who believe in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Is it possible that that, you know, perish meaning it's not, you're not coming back, there's not going to be repeated, and eternal life is going to go on forever? Would people extrapolate resurrection, not resurrection, reincarnation from that? From perishing? From eternal life. Hmm? I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, eternal life, you keep coming back. You keep coming back. You stopped them here. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't know if that'd be eternal. Uh, <laughs> there's nothing in the Bible about, you know, Reincarnation, okay, you know, you work your way through karma and you come back as a rat and then you mess up and you come back as something else, a goat, and then you, you know, work your way through. No. no, Christians have eternal life now, so when we die physically, our spirit is alive eternally and we're with Christ, all right, because we receive eternal life. And that's my whole thing with unbelievers. Unbelievers don't have eternal life, right? So what happens when they die if you don't have eternal life? You got death. You're gone. Okay. You perish. All right. Believers have eternal life. Immortality comes. We put on immortality. It's not something you're born with. And yet, now that's a Greek teaching. The Greek teach teach that everybody has an immortal soul. The Bible doesn't teach that. All right. We receive First Corinthians 15 immortality at the second coming. All right. So I have one other question. Okay. And I'll take up all your time, David. But I want to ask you about this word nations, okay, in Greek. 
2032. Okay. Okay, we talked about. Yeah. And it is plural. <coughs> right. All right. Uh, and maybe you can help me understand it because the word ethnos, right? Right. Yes. Is that, that is that a plural word or is that a. Well, it can be plural, it can be singular. Okay, it can be either way. Right. So it could be interpreted the other way as well. It could mean, I mean, you know, I mean, if you didn't want to take a certain view, then you could have it as a gathering of all the nations, all the people. Well, all is a key word there. I think. Yeah. So what is all? Well, I think, right. I just, what I was thinking of was, was Romans chapter 4, when he talks about Abraham's faith, and it was created with you know, Abraham, goes back to it, and he was going to be, uh, by uh, all the Gentiles, Gentiles, uh, he's the father of the Gentiles as well, right? Because of faith, of this principle, right? It was faith. The nations there is, again, the word nations. That's right. Which did include the world, not just the tribe of Israel. Yeah, well, let me say this. I don't, I'm not saying that God hasn't called the world back to himself. Okay, he did bring the Gentile nations back in. That, was, that started at Pentecost. You know, at Pentecost, there was people from all nations were there, and the gospel's preaching. They went back and took that back to their hometown, to their nations, and God did bring the nations back in. But I'm saying that in Matthew 25, he is focusing on Israel. That whole context, from beginning to end, 24 and 25, is focusing on Israel. Okay, so that's what I'm saying. Nations there involves them. I'm not saying God didn't bring the nations back in, because he did. At that time, there was a universal judgment. It was not, and we talked about this earlier in Matthew 24, verse 29, when the stars were fall from heaven. That, re, that dealt with the judgment of the heavens and the gods right, right along with Jerusalem's judgment. Right, but I'm just thinking, if it, if it was interpreted that way, then it, could have, it should have been said nation, not nations. Because nation would have included... The well, there were plural, itself. though, nations within Israel. That's the whole thing. They were counted as a lot of different nations there. Oh, you mean throughout the world? No, throughout <laughs> Jerusalem. The Roman Empire was a lot of nations. It would have been nation, not nations. The nation would have included all the tribes of Israel, just as all the states in our country are as one nation. But nations means the world. If I say, you know, there was a well, around all the nations, that means... You can say all the nations of Africa. Well, that's... We go back to the Great Commission, all right? They were to go to the nations. What what did that mean? Everybody know. He was talking about a local area. They were to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He told them that. So then there was nations within that group of Israel. Well, I don't That's why I said Edomia, Galilee, they were considered nations. That could be, but before the resurrection, before his glorification, they were talking about proclaiming the gospel in Israel. Yes. I mean, it went out to the nations, and the nations were gathered in. We've talked about that, but like I said, I'm just trying to stick to Matthew 25. The context there is Jerusalem, so that's why I don't think that goes beyond that. Everything else has been that. And Paul said it three different ways: that the Great Commission was done, right? And what he's saying makes sense to us, but it makes sense to them. You know, what? How did they understand? You know, again, it goes back to that audience relevance. Did it make sense to them? To say all nations was limited to the Palestinian nations of Galilee and Samaria and stuff like that. I don't know. I mean, it's 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 not easy for us because we're so far removed from them. What is the verse that says, um, you know, corresponding that to, to Jerusalem first and then to? Do you remember what that, that verse says? Yeah, that's in um, Acts one. Is that what you're talking about? 
Probably. I'm what? just wondering what the rest of that group says. Did you personally part of this? Oh, yeah. Parts of Jerusalem or something? Does it shed any light on that? I don't know. He, he's telling them. You start at Jerusalem, and then the circle went out. Okay, that's the whole idea from that text. You start here, you go here, then you go to the nation. So it was a expanding. They were to go. You know, but they didn't get that. Obviously, they didn't understand it at first because they didn't go for a long time until he pushed them out. And then Paul says, well, like you said, he told them not to go to the Gentiles and told them that they wouldn't reach the outer parts of Israel before it's coming. Right. You know, and, Matthew 10. You know, so they knew there was a limitation to it in their minds, but then we also know that the commission was fulfilled in the epistles. And, and I think one of the biggest keys is we've got context is king. You've got to keep it in the context of what he's talking about. Okay, He's not going outside context. So if that's the all of a discourse, and there's no question, everybody agrees the all of a discourse is 24 and 25. All right. So he doesn't all of a sudden, you know, start talking about some future judgment and future things. It doesn't make any sense. The questions that they asked were about Jerusalem. Those are the questions he answered. Well, it seems like other prophecies sometimes jump times, like like Daniel and. It might seems like they jump time to us, but do they jump time? Okay. Again, again, I mean, you know, the way we interpret things.